0: Welcome to another edition of IDS Talks. My name is Hunter McMahon, and I'm the COO at IDS, and I'm joined here today by Alex Blumrosen of Polaris Law. We're going to be talking about discovery via The Hague, which is something I never thought I'd say out loud in the same sentence, but it's going to be fun. Now, before we get started, Alex, you want to give us a little introduction about yourself?
1: Sure. Hi, Hunter. Uh, um, thanks for having me on. So I am an American attorney, Um, uh, based here in Paris, France. I've been here for 35 years. Uh, I practiced in New York for a couple of years with a big New York firm, Uh, moved to Paris uh, doing international litigation, international arbitration, and international judicial assistance, which is discovery in France for uh, documents and testimony to be used in the United States in U.S. courts. Uh, And that's what we're going to be talking about today.
0: Brilliant. Now for the audience, Alex and I actually just met last week while I was in Paris for the ABA, uh, cross-border Institute, but he had an awesome experience this past Sunday and we were just talking about it. You've got to share the ride that you were able to participate in on Sunday.
1: Well, I, this, uh, this will encroach a little bit on our heat discussion, but it's worth the uh, detour as they say. Um, so I, I'm, uh, uh, affiliated with the International Chamber of Commerce Court of Arbitration, where I often sit as an arbitrator, and the ICC Court was able to arrange for passes uh, for a bunch of people to from the ICC to uh, to tour and go around the arrival area of the show, of the Tour de France uh, on the final stage day, and so. Uh, We all showed up. I actually did a a long early morning ride, uh, got to the uh, Arc de Triomphe area in time for a a noon or so send off. And we did the entire loop in Paris around the Champs-Élysées, the Arc de Triomphe, with uh, this group of arbitrators and uh, and, uh, personnel staff uh, from the ICC. Uh, And it was just a great time. That is phenomenal.
0: When when you shared that, you were gonna be able to do that with me. I I wanted to say just to watch you, let alone be able to watch the tour itself. But uh Well there, there were already
1: home. people lined up. Uh the the public was lined up on the shoals when when we were going up and down and they were applauding us. That's awesome. So that was part of, that was pretty fun too. You'll just That's... have to come back next year.
0: There we go. Sounds like a plan. So so speaking of getting back, let's get back to topic at hand. Um, you know, while I was there, I was I was thinking about taking a hard drive, collecting some documents, just taking it home with me on the plane. No problem. Right. I mean, there, there's nothing to stop us from just sending a download link back to the states and saying, here's all your
1: emails and documents you need. Well, it's no problem, Hunter, if you want to go to jail. <laughs> I, hear the food, I hear the food in French jails it is great, but I don't think I'd recommend it. Uh, the problem is, and the obstacle is the French blocking statute. Uh, so there is this criminal law that was voted first in 1968 and then amended in 1980 that prohibits residents in France or foreigners, anybody who resides in France from participating in discovery in court cases abroad, uh, and communicating documents in discovery. Um, unless they go through the Hague Evidence Convention. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But it is a criminal statute. um, And there was one case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court where sanctions were applied against um, an American slash French attorney uh, who was prosecuted under the statute. And he's no longer practicing law. And he's no longer in France. And he's no longer in France so i can I can tell you the just a short version of, of what happened there. Uh, he was my co-counsel in a case where I represented the state of California uh, in a four or five billion dollar claim against a, a group of uh, French insurance companies, banks um, in connection with the bankruptcy of the executive life insurance company, which is a big california uh, insurance company. And so Blacklight was the. Uh, Commissioner of Insurance of California. And um, well, he asked uh, uh, Christopher X, that's my co counsel, and I to reach out to some former board members of a French company that was a party to the action. Um, I did it by writing the letters. So I had a written uh, trail of what it was that I was asking them. And Christopher X, uh, my book counsel uh, picked up the phone and called them. And so there was no written trail. And so the, the board, the former board directors he contacted complained to their company and said, this guy called out of the blue. He said this, that, and the other thing. There was no way for anyone to verify what was actually said. And so that company, which was a party to the action was defending against the state of California. And this claim in U.S. courts brought a criminal investigation, started a criminal investigation against the state of California's attorney, my co-counsel, for violating the blocking statute. And that is what was what he was convicted of. It went up on appeal, he lost, and it went up to the highest court in France, the, the Supreme Court, and he lost again.
0: So, excuse me, but let's get some clarity around the audience. I mean, that's not our typical discovery. Hey, I want your hard drives and all your emails and your text messages. He picked up the phone and called and talked to somebody. And because of that, it led to this. So it's not don't export data, so to speak. It is be careful how you do discovery across the board.
1: So it is. Across the board, as you say, and um, to understand how that works, it's useful to go back to the very terms of the French blocking statute, uh, because the blocking statute is is very broad and very clear, and doesn't just say uh, it d- doesn't just talk about um, uh, your hard drive. It says any uh, attempt or any contact or any discussion uh, to get information or documents or data uh, about uh, the claim or something related to the claim from a French person to be used in connection with a foreign litigation has to go through the Hague, And so that's any contact. Now, um, we'll get we'll come back to the types of discovery under the Hague because there's, uh, there are two different procedures. There's a chapter one and a chapter two procedure and the Supreme court in the, um, in its decision that aligned, uh, Christopher X, uh, did go out of its way because this is one of the arguments that I had put in, uh, in the, uh, in the pleadings and in the, in the briefing to the Supreme court, Um, it did put in and confirmed that it was okay to contact a witness to find out if they are willing to consent to a chapter two process, or if they are going to require you to go through the compulsive or compulsion chapter one process. So we'll, we'll get to what that means and and how those two work. Um, but that, that is the only reason you can contact a potential witness in France. You can call them up and write them, and you can say, do you want to participate voluntarily, or do we have to drag you into court? And that's it. And the allegations against Christopher X was that he called this former board member, and he asked a bunch of questions about what happened during the board meeting. And, uh, isn't it true that, uh, that X said this to Y would you be willing to come in and, uh, appear as a witness in california to testify about this that or the other day and that according to the Supreme board went way over that that minimum that could have been asked to the witness. so in,
0: in that instance or any instance going forward you could ask how they want to participate but you cannot gain participation unless you go through chapter one or chapter two yep that's even right. if they're like oh I'll participate forget about the chapters I'm not worried about it you still better go through chapter 1 or sh- chapter 2
1: you still have to do it you still have to do it and so there there are i think a lot of examples in practice where uh, firms and witnesses and parties ignore the very existence of the blocking statute and they show up and sometimes they 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 choose to ignore it but they know about it. And sometimes they just don't know about it. And they all meet in a Paris hotel room or conference room or the cafe, I don't know where they meet. And they do their deposition uh, and everybody is on board, uh, but it is illegal and it could be subject to sanctions. And there are a couple of risks also, um, because um, when you're dealing with international litigation, you always have to think about the end game which is enforcement of whatever judgment you are going to get. And so um, if you were trying to get evidence from a French party, and at the end of the day, you have to come back to France with your U.S. judgment and enforce that judgment in Freya, that doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen easily. You have to go to the French court. And, and a French party can defend against enforcement of that U.S. judgment by saying... This judgment was obtained in violation of French law. It violates public policy in France. It should not be enforced. And so all of that work that went into putting together a trial and hearing and briefing and everything in the United States is for naught. If the it, are located in France.
0: I would not want to be the one that has to tell the client, hey, we won, but we didn't. So let's talk about these chapters. Chapter one, we we you referenced as the compulsatory or or the, hey, you don't want to cooperate, so I'm going to force you. But let's maybe perhaps focus more on chapter two. Um, it seems to be the, all right, I get something's going on. I'm willing to cooperate. Let's do this the right way. So can you explain what chapter two means?
1: Right. So the, uh, the they both seek the same thing, right? The well, chapters one and chapters two. Uh, are both court to court, country to country systems for one country to get the court assistance of another country. And so what happened, and this is very important to remember because uh, this isn't Hunter picking up the phone or writing to a clerk of a court in Paris saying, wouldn't it be nice to have some discovered? This is a, an international convention architecture. that says, if you want discovery in, you're in a, in a U.S. proceeding, you go to the U.S. court. The U.S. judge is the only one who can make a request. So you have to uh, do a certain amount of motion practice in the United States, whether it's chapter one or two, just to get to the U.S. court. And you're going to tell the U.S. court um, what it is you want. If you have a voluntary witness, uh, someone who's consenting, someone who wants to show up, Um, that's fine. You say to the U.S. judge, give me a Chapter 2 voluntary request and and we'll process that. And then once we get that, we take it to the central authority in France, which is the French Ministry of Justice. And they oversee the application and enforcement of the, the Hague Evidence Convention. And they have to review every single U.S. court order or discovery that is supposed to be implemented in freight. So whether it's chapter one or chapter two, you follow that same procedure, you go first to the U.S. court, you then file the U.S. order with the Ministry of Justice. And depending on which chapter you're in, that takes either a long time for chapter one, or it takes a short time for chapter two. What kind well, of timing?
0: Are we are, are we talking days, weeks, months? So
1: in chapter two, when everyone is consensual and you're not talking about any subject matter that might uh, affect the sovereign interests of France. So if you're if you're if you're trying to get nuclear secrets uh, from Areva. Um, th- this could take months and you might have to go through chapter one and other French ministries might get involved, like the ministry of the economy or finance. Uh, but if you're in a typical uh, U.S. litigation, a commercial litigation, uh, um, it could be court litigation and uh, or pharmaceutical litigation. And you, there's some bit of evidence like uh, lab notebooks from the Pasteur Institute or the, some other French research institute that might be relevant to the patent claims or license claims in the US action, um, and everyone is willing to comply, we can get everything authorized within about a week to two weeks, which is incredible. You know, France in Europe is, is known as a country where the French administration is not all that efficient. Uh, But in connection with the Hague Evidence Convention, they are very, very fast in authorizing these voluntary uh, Chapter 2 discovery orders coming in from the United States. And so it's very easy to represent to the U.S. court and to the U.S. parties uh, two things that we can drill down. Uh, First, that the scope of the discovery available is going to be very broad, just like it would be in the United States. And two, that the timing is going to be very fast and will not affect the calendar of the judge.
0: The calendar of which judge?
1: Of the U.S. judge. Because so U.S. Um, judges are really in charge of, uh, of, of everything in connection with the U.S. litigation. And they are very jealous of their calendar. You know, they, they don't want anything to come up, you know, setting a trial um, could take a year, a year and a half, right? You've got uh, exchanges of discovery, then you've got uh, expert witnesses, then you've got other bits of trial preparation, you've got hearings, you've got, and then he, the, the judge has other trials that are also being lined up. So the last thing a U.S. judge or any judge wants is to have some unknown factor come in um, where the judge, the U.S. court is no longer in charge, that they are somehow dependent on a foreign uh, ministry or a foreign court uh, that might uh, change uh, the time frame that they have in mind in the U.S. procedure. So
0: the, so the goal and part of this is to facilitate not to block, despite the fact that they're called the blocking statutes, but the Hague allows for the facilitation of litigation cross-border.
1: Exactly, exactly. And the French blocking statute is called the blocking statute, but it's really also called the French evidence law, or it can be called the channeling statute because it channels discovery requests through this international treaty.
0: Excellent. So, and, and but navigating that channel can be quite tricky. And so you play a unique role sometimes as a commissioner as part of
1: this process. Yes, exactly. And so I assist parties in two ways. Uh, in the chapter one compulsive compulsory process, I will often be counsel to one of the parties and I will help the parties figure out what the process looks like. Uh, what the orders to the U.S. judge look like, how to negotiate with the other side in the U.S. proceeding, Uh, getting uh, that order uh, implemented um, in France, because you have to, as I said, uh, take it to the Ministry of Justice, and then the Ministry of Justice sends it on for enforcement to a French judge, and there are discussions to be had with the French judge. And so I would work as counsel to one of the parties to make sure that process works. Um, And in chapter two, I typically get appointed as a commissioner. And as a commissioner in this very quick, very efficient, voluntary process, I work with the parties upstream to make sure that all the documentation from the U.S. court is fine. Uh, I work with them also to make sure that all the U.S. parties are on the same page about what it means to go through the hate, what it means to have to comply with the blocking statute, um, what it means... Uh, to have to comply, for example, with privacy concerns for documents coming from Europe. And we can come back to that. Uh, and then I, I work through that whole process. And as a commissioner in the Chapter 2 process, I am designated or appointed by the U.S. judge to oversee the implementation of the process. And so uh, I, my role is not one of decision maker. Uh, I don't decide as commissioner on any issues, whether they are privilege issues or objections. All of those are reserved um, to the U.S. judge who is in charge of the case. They can be preserved on the record and the judge can decide all those issues later on. I am there to make sure the parties, the U.S. court, the French Ministry of Justice are all on the same page about what is being asked and I make sure it happens
0: you're like a concierge of the process
1: well I've never been called a concierge before I I think I've been called much worse but I, so I'll take concierge
0: <laughs> I mean you're, <laughs> you're you're making sure all the parties understand what's going on they get to their destination they have quote the best experience possible so that they can move on with the litigation and and this becomes uh, a mere blip in the the process
1: that's right uh, that's exactly right and there are a lot of moving parts. There's the French side with the Ministry of Justice. There's all the the personnel and the vendors that need to be put in place. We need to have a, a court uh, reporter in Paris, an interpreter potentially for the witness, a videographer. So I have um, uh, a stable of uh, vendors that I work with here, and so it's 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 a as you say it's a concierge one stop shop. Love it uh, for 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 uh, this kind of discovery in France. And, and uh, what I've seen over the years is that no firm in the United States, whether it's a small firm uh, in Northern New York or a big New York firm or a big DC firm or a big LA firm, they don't have uh, the knowledge and experience that we have in Paris in dealing with this convention. So it's much easier... Uh, for them to, you know, reach out to someone who has all this experience. I've done over 50 of these Hague, uh, discovery matters over the last, uh, 15, 20 years. Um, ra- and so rather than have, uh, a discovery associates or, or US side vendors, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, it is much more efficient, uh, to reach out to someone like me who can act as commissioner who has examples of other matters where um, where this is, has been implemented, where it's been used, where everybody is happy. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's what everyone wants. They just want it to happen. They want the discovery to take place. They want the schedule set by the U.S. judge to be followed. Um, and I can make sure that that, that happens.
0: Now let's, you mentioned something a few times and and we probably don't have time today to go all the way into it, but just because you navigate chapter two, say so as an example, and we're at least partially cooperative in the sense of we want to make this happen and go through the process, you've got all your paperwork and the orders in play. That means I can turn over everything, right? There's no other concerns that I have. Maybe privacy. Maybe maybe that's still a blip on the radar. Still got to navigate that. There you
1: that. go. It's the blip. Uh, so whenever you think about Europe, you think about privacy. Data yes. protection. Uh, it's a big thing here. It's a big thing in the United States, but it's uh, just... The difference is it really? <laughs> it it <laughs> is. It is. It's uh, what they say they call sectorial, and so you know, when you're dealing with health information in the U.S. or you're dealing with children's uh, rights to access online data and things like that, you know there are specific statutes. Here, but there's no overriding global omnipresent statute uh, in the United States the way there is in Europe, which and that's the GDPR. The GDPR. It um, lays out conditions that you have to follow um, in order to uh, process data. And it applies everywhere. It applies to all processing of data within Europe. And it applies to data that is exported from Europe to the United States or anywhere else in the world in connection with discovery. And so you've got these two conditions. You've got these two conditions. Uh, um, obligations you need to follow, you have to go through the blocking, were the, through the Hague Evidence Convention because of the blocking statute. And what you communicate, what you produce has to conform with the GDPR because that's also a statute of general application in Europe. And again, it has fines, so it's got fines that can go up to 4% of annual turnover uh the part in the party Just violated, a few dollars. Which is huge, which is huge. Um, and and the GDPR specifically says at Article 48 uh, that it is a blocking statute. And so Article 48, if you read closely, says that just like the French statute, that if you are going to export personal data uh, about EU residents, from Europe outside of uh, the EU, um, you have to comply with GDPR.
0: So we're, we're gonna we're gonna hang back on that one because there's a whole other aspect that we talked about last week with a privacy monitor and and how to help parties navigate even GDPR after they've navigated the Hague. But we're gonna reserve that for another episode. That's
1: true. That that's great. I will be glad to come back. And I don't want you to make it sound so difficult. So, you know, all of this can be very easy. It can be very simple. It can be very fast. It doesn't overly burden the litigants or the U.S. courts, um, but it's just something the parties have to keep in mind. And it's something that can be easily easily navigable uh, if you get the right resources. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Alex, for joining us
0: today and our listeners. If you would like to learn more about IDS or subscribe, you can go to IDSinc.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Again, thanks for joining us, letting us learn a little bit about The Hague and how to navigate the discovery process. And we'll have you back soon to talk about privacy.
1: Thanks, Hunter. It's a pleasure. See you soon.